I am strangely fascinated by the way that the four Gospels in the Bible begin and end. They say that every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and how a writer begins and ends their story has everything to do with the story that they tell in the middle. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are arguably telling the same story, the story of God's saving love for us in Jesus Christ, and yet they are so different particularly in how they each begin and end. The Gospel of Mark dives right in with the baptism of Jesus. That's the first thing in Mark. It then moves breathlessly through the life of Christ, one thing after another, all the way to the cross and then to Easter, where we find the empty tomb. There are no sightings of the risen Christ, just the faithful women at the tomb. They were the last at the cross. They were the first at the tomb. And there they are, trembling and bewildered. And the gospel ends saying, and they said nothing to nobody. The writer of the Gospel of Luke calmly announces at the beginning that they are writing an orderly account of the life of Jesus, starting with the birth stories, where the story of a life begins. And then moving steadily through the life of Christ, one thing after another. But Luke doesn't stop at death. There is resurrection and the appearances of the risen Christ, and then the Gospel of Luke turns into its sequel, the book of Acts, and there's Pentecost, as the good news of Jesus moves steadily, step by step, out into the whole known word, world. It is an orderly account. And then the Gospel of John has this wonderful cosmic start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt in the midst of us, full of grace and truth. And then the writer pours forth word after word, image after image, sign after sign, how this Word becomes flesh. And then the writer ends the Gospel of John like this. This is what the writer says. These... These are just some of the things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, there would not be books enough to hold them all. Isn't that fantastic? Our second scripture this morning is how the Gospel of Matthew begins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, Jesse was the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and so on and so on for another 19 generations through the people's experience of exile and beyond. And then it picks up again in verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born 
who is called Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile uh, uh, to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please pray with me. Holy God, may your word be present in all our beginnings and our endings and in the life we live in between. Amen. Now, why would anyone start a story like that? With this lengthy genealogical list with what my grandmother used to call the begats. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah. Even in biblical times, that couldn't have been the most interesting way to start a story. Well, maybe we could start thinking about why folks are interested in genealogies today. And lots of us are. You can crowdsource your genealogy on Ancestry.com, trace your family tree back with the help of others who are doing the same thing. Or... You can send in a DNA sample to 23andMe.com and find something about who and where you were from. Your ancestor begat your ancestor, and so on and so on, all the way down to you and yours. Years ago, my Aunt Pody, my grandmother's youngest sister, traced my dad's side of the family all the way back to County Leitrim in the north of Ireland, and Yorkshire in England. She and I were texting back and forth this week, and she told me that along the way she also discovered and noticed that the generations in our family also seemed to share an interest in medicine and in learning and teaching. On my mother's side of the family, my grandfather Newland became particularly interested in following the historical record to confirm that in the Civil War, his grandfather, who was a Union soldier, was a prisoner at the Andersonville prison camp in Georgia. My Aunt Pody's work located one side of my family in a place. We have deep roots in Indiana and even deeper roots in Ireland and Yorkshire. Her work also located us in vocational traditions, a shared work in the world on down through the generations. My grandfather Newland's work located the other side of my family in history, in the big events of history. Where were we? What side were we on? We look to genealogy as one way to locate ourselves in the story. Where do we fit in the broad sweep of things? The writer of the Gospel of Matthew begins the Gospel with a genealogy to locate Jesus in the broad sweep of God's saving action in the world from the very beginning across the generations and by locating Jesus there to locate us there too. There we are with Jesus in the broad sweep of things. You see, perhaps more than any of the other Gospels, Matthew's community seems to be a community that has suffered a recent and painful trauma a disorienting conflict. From the tone of the gospel, scholars think that Matthew's community may have been thrown out or had a bitter split with another community. 
Their community seems to be arguing in the gospel strenuously against something or somebody or somebodies. In that first century, Rome, in that first century, Rome had burned the temple in Jerusalem to the ground. So folks throughout what would become the Judaism we know today were trying to figure out who they were without the temple that had defined them for so long. Matthew's community found that in Jesus. And they likely found it in a way that included both Jewish and Gentile believers. And somehow, somehow all that put them on the outside. The experience was traumatic and disorienting and bewildering. And so the writer of Matthew begins with a genealogy to ground the story. They locate Jesus firmly in God's saving work across the generations from Abraham, the very beginning of the covenant, to King David, the royal house, to the experience of the people in exile, and now to Jesus. Fourteen generations and fourteen generations and fourteen generations with a number of outsiders included in the list and women too, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and implicitly included in that list those who follow Jesus too. The writer of Matthew says to his community, hey, we are a part of this story too. Biblical scholar Eugene Boring asks, what does the writer of Matthew want us to believe about this text? And then he turns around and answers, first, Jesus is the fulfillment of what has gone before, connected to everything that God has done up until now. Second, the story of God's work is inclusive. Jews and Gentiles, women and men, and third, third, God is at work across the generations. Last week, we started our Epiphany series, The Work of Wonder, thinking about how we experience God made manifest in the midst of us. Something that's totally beyond our comprehension and how we make sense of that and how we somehow find in that the work that is ours to do. We talked about light for the next step. Sitting in the here and now, seeing it real and following our curiosity to the next step and then the next. That is the first thing. This week, we name the reality that sometimes the here and now can be rough and overwhelming and disorienting like it was for Matthew's community. And so our experience of the here and now needs something more, something to steady us. Trying to understand our immediate context is necessary, but sometimes it is not enough. It's like that Reinhold Niebuhr quote on the front of the bulletin, nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context in history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Think of watching the news over the last three years and the tumult the disruption and the chaos we have experienced just this week, Tuesday night, as, as the deacons gathered, that's where I was, we felt like we were on the brink of yet another war. Over the past three years, I've heard folks say over and over, it's just too much. How can I keep up? There's so much to do. Where do I even start? And I have said that too. To get our bearings, we do need to zoom in, but then we also need to zoom out. 
A few months ago, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Krista Tippett's On Being. I can't recommend it highly enough. It is fascinating every week. And she was interviewing that week folks about their experience of social change. So one of the two people she was interviewing was America Ferreira, the actress and activist. The other was John Paul Lederach, who is a professor emeritus of international peace building at Notre Dame. And Krista Tippett was asking them how they understand and how they move in and through the tumult of our time. Lederbach says that he leans into something that his teacher, sociologist Elise Boulding, used to say, that we live in a 200-year present. And he explains it like this. Think back to your very first memories and think of the oldest person who would have held you when you were an infant. And then, think of when they were born. Then, think right now to the very youngest person that you know. The very youngest person you might hold. And think of what a reasonable lifespan for them might be, 70 or 80 years, and think what decade they might reach. From here, to there, we are held and touched by, and we will hold and touch the lives of people that span a 200-year present. Our present moment is a part of all that. We are a part of all that. So you can do your own personal math for me, the oldest person who first held me was my great-grandmother, Elsie Ruark, and she was born on October 30th, 1891. If I think to the youngest person I know now in my family, that's probably my youngest step-nephew, who is four, or in this congregation, maybe baby June, who is just a few months old, and so we're going to think out to the year 2100. From here to there, we are held by and we will touch the lives that span a 200-year present. We are a part of all that. So the work that is ours to do, even in a bewildering world, is connected to all that. We're not alone. So it's not our individual work to solve to completion on our own all the biggest problems that confront our world. But it is. It is our work to figure out what, within this big sweep of things, is ours to do and to do it bravely. It is our work to understand our lives in connection with the work that has been done already by, in love by everybody who has come before us. And then to hand off our work and our world to those who come next. To work together side by side right here, right now, and then to trust them to take up the work where we must leave off. Genealogy helps us see that most clearly in terms of family. 
The diaper we changed today, the meal that we made, the argument we had at last night's dinner, the hand that we held, the tear that we shed, they are all part of the big sweep of things, generations of love lived out in family. Within that, we find the work that is ours to do. We can think of that in terms of this church. Right now, sitting here, worshiping, we are connected in this moment to all the ways that God has been worked at work in this place since the church's beginning in 1897 when the congregation first gathered over in Montgomery Chapel. All that is connected to the work that you are doing now, discerning where you will move next. I thought about it a lot um, in my work with Janie Spar, particularly during the toughest defeats along the way. As many of you know, Janie is a pastor who is welcoming LGBTQIA people, embracing our calls to serve, our marriages, our families, long before this denomination or the world ever did. And the church prosecuted her for it, and I was one of her church lawyers. And again and again, we lost. Defeat after defeat. But Janie has always seen, with this quiet groundedness, how her work and our shared work stands on the shoulders of all those who have come before. It stands in community, in the community of those working for justice and love even now. And it matters for tomorrow, whether today is win or lose, because ultimately God's promises become complete in the work of generations. And so Janie can stand now today and see those results, and she and I can um, embrace the leadership of folks younger than us like Alex McNeil, who's in his early 30s and leading, nationally leading More Light Presbyterians, Ananda Barkley, who was the young co-moderator of More Light, who'll be preaching here two weeks from today. I think of this in terms of the work this congregation does in our response to climate emergency. If ever, if ever there was an issue that depends on us understanding how interconnected we are, that is it. And I think of the work that this congregation has done for so long for peace in Israel-Palestine. Talk about the work of generations. The work of generations from Genesis through this very week. And as we think of our observance of Martin Luther King Day next week, I think of his work and the progress that he didn't leave to see and so much work that remains to be done to dismantle systemic American racism and how he had that clear sense, that clear sense that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. He located us in the broad sweep of God's saving work in the world and insisted that we find within that arc, within that sweep, the work in this moment and this day that is ours to do. There's a theological word for this, providence. God is at work in the world all the time, from the beginning of time, right here, right now, through the generations, 
on until that day when all of this will be complete, when all things will be made right, when we will gather at the river, all of us together and whole. From the very start of the Gospel of Matthew, the writer locates Jesus in us in this broad expanse of God's saving and loving work across the generations. The writer begins with a genealogy and then in just a few chapters brings us to the shores of the river and with Jesus we walk into the waters of baptism. Baptism is the embodied sign of how we are encompassed in, how we belong to the broad sweep of God's loving, saving action into the world. Jesus walks into the waters and says to John the Baptist, this is right and good, a fulfillment of everything that has come before. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son, my child whom I love with him, I am well pleased in baptism. In baptism, we glimpse our place in all that. Our lives will hold and touch the lives of people who will span a 200-year present. That 200-year present is connected to and part of the broad expanse of God's loving, saving work across the generations. We are a part of all that and within all that. Standing in the tumult of our day, standing on the shoulders of those who have come before, taking care to shape a world that we can hand along to those who follow in the wonder of all that. What lies before us in each moment of every day is to find the work that is ours to do. God's beloved children, each of us, and all of us, together.